Welcome to the latest edition of the MindGut Conversation, an interview series where I talk to experts about topics of gut health, the microbiome, and mind-gut interactions. Today, I have the pleasure and honor to talk to a colleague, um, a fellow gastroenterologist, Robin Chutkan. Uh, she's the author of uh, best-selling digestive health books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and Bloat Cure. Going to say a few words about your career path, uh, which is uh, taking you through the elite institutions in medical training. So you, um, she received her bachelor's degree from Yale University, medical degree from Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, um, and did her fellowship in gastroenterology at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Um, she's a faculty at the um, Georgetown University Hospital and has been there since 1997. So importantly, in 2004, she founded the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice, and we'll come back to this, what this means incorporating microbial optimization and nutritional therapy as part of the therapeutic approach to digestive disorders. She has been a sought after guest on some of the top talk shows in the country, uh, the Today Show, CBS This Morning, The Doctors. Uh, she's also a regular guest on the Dr. Oz, Oz Show and um, has been interviewed for uh, some of the main um, media outlets, including the Washington Post um, and Women's Health magazines. So it's a pleasure, Robin, to welcome you um, to, this, um, to this interview. Thank you so much, Emran. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. And I just have to share with the audience about when we first met, which was just a few years ago. I believe it was fall 2019. I had, I had read your book and I'm a big fan. And so I was familiar with your work and we were both at this event in Colorado and we can't say too much about the event, except that we were surrounded by some very high net worth people. And we were, I think we were two of the only physicians there. So I think it was an instant bond. But the, the funny thing about that meeting is I remember I was familiar with your work. I had read through a lot of your book but I hadn't really read it cover to cover. And I had it in my office because I had it in my waiting room. I was, I was recommending it to patients. So as I left for the airport, I said, let me swing by and grab Emran's book. And I read it again, cover to cover on the plane. And I remember when we met at that reception and I said, we're talking about the same thing, but I'm bottom up and you're top down. And it was, <laughs> you know, it was just, it felt so great. Like I was meeting you for the first time, but I instantly felt like I was amongst friends because we really, I think we saw things so similarly and sort of spoke the same language, if you will. Yeah, I mean, thanks for saying this, you know, very, very kind words. I mean, I have, I had exactly the same experience. Um, I had heard about you. Uh, I, I had not read your books, um, but um, you know this this meeting, both the, the 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 opportunity to exchange, to spend three days and exchange personal stories and and really get to know you um, and realize that how how much we're on the, uh, operating on the same wavelengths was really a, a remarkable thing. And I mean, the fact that we're talking today, it's it's different from some of the other interviews where I interview people that I'm not that 
close to, but in your case, I feel like, you know, we are on the same wavelength here and we will, we will be exchanging our own uh, wisdom in this, in this, uh, in this conversation. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, let, let me start with the first question. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you trained in the best institutions in the US or in, in, in the world in conventional medicine and conventional gastroenterology. And um, so you even did uh, GI endoscopies on your patients. I don't know if you still do that, um, um, but that sort of really make you a traditional gastroenterologist uh, on, uh, you know, on, on, on first impression. So uh, my question is, what made you become an integrative gastro uh, gastroenterologist and start a digestive wellness center? And, and you may want to start with a definition of what an integrative gastroenterologist is. Sure, it's really just a gastroenterologist who's interested in the entire body and not just the gut and the interconnectedness of the body with the rest of the gut, similarly to how you are with all the gut-brain connections. But I'd also like to point out that, you know, as you said, I'm conventionally trained and I am a conventional physician. I'm not a functional medicine doc, I'm not a naturopath, and I'm very proud to be a physician. I'm not proud all the time of how medicine is practiced. I'm not proud of how gastroenterology is practiced uh, all the time, but I am, you know, I am a conventional physician who I think just looks through an additional lens of root cause. And, and I, I'm sure you sort of share my passion about this, where in medicine, we're so focused on what? What does a patient have? Do they have Crohn's? Do they have ulcerative colitis? Do they have microscopic colitis? Do they have ischemic colitis? But that question, why, why is this patient sick in the first place was just something that I felt like conventional gastroenterology was completely sidestepping. And we were going straight to, okay, this is Crohn's. We're going to put them on this medication. We're going to scope them. We're, you know, we're going to do all these things. And I had people asking me all the time, well, why do I have Crohn's? Why do I have ulcerative colitis? Why do I have diverticulosis? And I didn't really have a good answer for them based on what I learned in training. So really the integrative piece is about answering that question and, and seeking answers to those questions because we don't always have them. And lots of times the answers are rooted in things like diet and lifestyle and habits and so on. Not always, there's still things, genetic predisposition, et cetera, but trying to answer that bigger question of not just what are you sick with, but why are you sick with in the first place? And the reason that's so important is if we can figure out what that triggering event or those triggering events were, we can sort of follow the breadcrumbs backwards, ideally, and we can undo whatever it is that's going on. Not all the time, but, but frequently. And that's a really exciting thing for me about being a, gastroenter a gastroenterologist and an integrative gastroenterologist is, is that sort of backward breadcrumb journey with the patient. Yeah, and no, so I mean, along these lines, I, mean, I, I sort of feel very, uh, very similar. You know, our, our genes have been with us and haven't really changed. I mean, it takes about 10 to 15,000 years before genes uh, really adapt to like, you know, the environment and things um, other than epigenetic phenomena. But we have a lot of diseases that have been increasing in, in, in prevalence um, in the last, you know, 75 years since World War II, and they continue to increase. So it's got to be some of these other factors that why is this happening now, you know, that we have to answer. Like we can't just say we're going deeper and deeper into genetic testing, which will be great for a few, probably the minority of diseases, but for what we see 
as the most common patients, probably that question why and these various factors from the, that define the life of a, of a patient are probably, I, I, I would say, at least as if not more important. Absolutely. I have, a, I have a talk that I've given a few times called Why Your Microbes Are More Important Than Your Genes. And um, I asked people, I said, okay, you know, we talk about the Human Genome Project, which is incredibly important and was a huge contribution and still is to medicine. But I asked people, since the Human Genome Project, where we have been able to map the entire human genome, how many diseases do you think we've been able to cure? And the answer, as you know, is zero, right? Because the genes in many cases are just a suggestion. There are, and if, if I look at the diseases that I treat and am very passionate about, which is inflammatory bowel disease and the two sister diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, we know from a lot of the European studies and a lot of the twin data that even in monozygotic twins, so basically twins from the same egg, identical genetic material, that the concordance, the likelihood of both twins having Crohn's doesn't even really approach 50%. So there are all these other factors out there and it's those other factors that I am really interested in and I think lots of patients are interested in because if you can answer the question why, you're really on your road to prevention. So you, you had that, that realization apparently early on in your career, like in 2004, you started this Digestive Wellness Center and um, um, I mean, can you say a few words? What what do you do in that center? I mean, that's it's sort of become a popular term. So you know, UCLA started a wellness center in the last year, even though you know my own thinking and teaching has been along these lines for a long time. But the institution became receptive to this. So this is something that you knew or thought about 16, 17 years ago. Well, what, I'll credit really two things. Um, one is my gastroenterology training at Mount Sinai because I had the privilege of training with people like Jerry Way and Dan Present and David Sacker. And, you know, David was a chairman of the department when I was there, one of the great minds of gastroenterology. Dan Present was sort of, you know, had this incredibly successful and um, busy inflammatory bowel disease practice. And Jerry Way, who was sort of father of endoscopy, had this equal fully um, fantastic, primarily endoscopy practice, but it was amazing how they all worked together. You know, so you had people in private practice, you had the full-time, very academic people, but everybody was recognizing the contribution of the other. And there was an incredible amount of innovation going on. And the idea was, if you think you can do something well, that's going to really serve patients, you should go out and do it. You know, you build it and they will come. So when I when I left Georgetown for, you know, uh, Vistas Unknown in 2004, I was pregnant. <laughs> we were gutting a house down to the studs. And, and I left my, my assistant at the time, uh, Betty Greenhouse is such a wonderful woman, came with me, I sort of stole her away. And I remember being pregnant and the night before the first patient came, like we were there together trying to hook up the fax machine and you know figure stuff out. I, I don't even think I had the, the prescription pads didn't came. I mean, it was just sort of a mess, but I had this idea that if I could help people in this more innovative way, if I could help people who were also interested in this answer of why, you know, we would figure it out. And we absolutely did. I remember the first patient who came to see me, she was a nun and she was so lovely. And I remember saying to Betty, 
I said, I don't think I can charge her because she, you know, she's a nun and she's a first patient. And Betty said, I'm going to write out a bill for you and you go out there and give it to her. <laughs> you know, it was just, I'd never billed anybody. I'd been, you know, at Georgetown full time at that point for the previous nine years. And I'll tell you, Emran, it was terrifying and thrilling at the same time. It, it really was. So really, I, I have to give a big um, acknowledgement to the folks at Sinai who trained me and who to this day I'm still very good friends with, who really gave me that confidence to say, you know what, you can take care of patients, you know what you're doing, and you should go out and do it. And then the second thing happened a little bit after the fact, and that was really the birth of my daughter. She was born in 2005, and I opened the practice in 2004, in the fall of 2004. But that experience that I had with her birth um, really gave me, again, the sort of confidence to know I was on the right path. And I'll just sort of summarize that quickly. So I was 39 when I had her. So that's advanced maternal age, but I was very healthy. I didn't have any medical problems. And I had a very uneventful pregnancy, went into labor, felt sure that she was going to be born during the Oprah Winfrey show <laughs> at four o'clock that day, which didn't happen. Oprah Winfrey came and went and it was midnight. And I really wanted a vaginal delivery because even though I was not anywhere near as well-versed on the microbiome as I am now, I still knew that there was a reason that the baby came out through you know, the vagina and not through the abdomen. So I really wanted a vaginal birth and I you know, did a lot of things that in retrospect, I would have done differently, including getting the epidural, et cetera. A lot of things that really led to failure to progress with the labor and ended up with a C-section and ended up with antibiotics, not because there was any infection, but because I had the flu that year. And so, you know, they were being cautious and mom has a fever, let's give antibiotics. At the time, I didn't realize how problematic this could potentially be, but the birth ended up being a C-section. I got antibiotics, she got antibiotics. Because of my fever, they put her in the NICU in the neonatal ICU, even though she was perfectly healthy. Unbeknownst to me, she got more antibiotics there, again, just in case, which quite frankly, Emron, at the time, I thought like, oh, this is great. They're being really proactive and, you know, just in case, not realizing the damage that this was doing. And really, this led to a series of events over the next few years of her literally being on antibiotics almost every month for her first two years of life. I mean, she was not yet in preschool and she'd been on 20 courses of antibiotics. And she was just getting sicker and sicker. And this is my first child, she's my only child. So I didn't have anything to compare it to, but I would talk to friends and they're like, no, my kid's never been on antibiotics or she's been on antibiotics once. And I'm like, well, my kid's been on antibiotics 17 times. My kid's been hospitalized for rotavirus with you know, failing kidneys and liver at the time, so sick. And, and yes, of course, rotavirus is common and lots of kids get it, but this is really something different and I, I remember very clearly the day we were heading down to South Carolina to see my husband's family. And my daughter, Sydney, was sick again for, you know, the 15th time this year, that year. And my husband said, well, we should take her to the doctor. And at that point, I was really losing confidence in, in what was going on in that particular practice. And I said, no, I don't think we should take her. We should just, let's just wait and see. And my husband said, no, no, we're going to be traveling. We should take her. And they walked back into the house. And my daughter was three or four years old and they walked in 
she was carrying a nebulizer machine for asthma with stickers, of course. And my husband had four prescriptions. He had a prescription for uh, an antibiotic, a steroid, some sort of inhaler and an antihistamine. And I remember sort of just sort of taking it all in. And I said, absolutely not. This is not the road we're going down. And I took the nebulizer machine and the stickers. She was very upset that I took the stickers and the prescriptions. And I put them in a big box in my attic. And I said, no, there, we have got to find another way. Because what I realized, Emran, is that this road my daughter was going down was the exact same road that so many of my beloved IBD patients, who I'd gotten to know, you know, really over the last decade, had gone down, that they had been C-section babies, they had not been nursed very long, my breast milk dried up after a couple months, and they had had tons and tons and tons of recurrent antibiotics. And I remember reading this meta-analysis from my alma mater from Mount Sinai, they looked at 7,000 patients with inflammatory bowel disease, and they found that antibiotics were the number one risk factor for people developing Crohn's. There was data from Canada, from New Zealand that showed that antibiotics in the first year of life can increase the likelihood of autoimmune diseases like Crohn's threefold. And then there's a five to 8% increase every year after that. And I'm like, this is a road we're going down. And so I, I just, you know, I just had to stop. And, and I just want to say, like, I'm a physician. So I was in a particularly good position to evaluate the medical advice and to say, I don't think this is right. I would never recommend that anybody just stop taking their kid to the doctor. That's not at all what I'm recommending. But you have to question, because when I went into the pediatrician and I, I went home and I pulled out all the old prescriptions, I'm sort of an obsessive filer. So I was able to pull out all the prescriptions. And I went to the pediatrician who was a lovely woman and a friend of mine. And, and I said, do you realize that Sydney's been on, you know, whatever it was like, 20 courses of antibiotics. And she really hadn't because, you know, you go and they sort of open the chart and, okay, what was she on last time? And nobody was really keeping track. And I was really seeing that the more antibiotics she got, the sicker she became. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was a, a big part of the revelation that we were destroying her poor little microbiome that had barely gotten started. And, um, and that it was just making her sicker and we had to figure something else out. And also realizing that a lot of these ear infections and sore throats were viral. So they were gonna be self-limited and they weren't even really amenable to being treated with antibiotics. So that process really made me realize, and you know, I didn't turn away from conventional medicine in any way. I just said, we need a more judicious approach. We can't, you know, give kids these massive doses of antibiotics and, and expect that nothing will happen. And, and now we know that a, a five to seven day course of broad spectrum antibiotics, like the kind Sydney was getting, can remove up to a third of your gut bacteria. And we know that for you and I, who are older, uh, this is not such a big issue because our microbiome is more resistant. But in those first three to four years of life, it's everything. You're removing these founding species and you're increasing the chances that these kids are going to have more asthma, more autoimmune diseases, more allergies, more obesity. So that was really the other sort of aha, like we've got to do this differently. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm grateful in a way. I, I, it is one of the biggest regrets of my life. I wish I could redo that whole thing and, and not have a C-section and not get tons of antibiotics and not have her in the NICU. 
But I will say that that event really changed the way I looked at how we were doing things. And I think, you know, I've been able to help lots of people through having this sort of different set of eyes as a result of that. Yeah, thanks, Robin, for, for sharing this, this personal story. I mean, I hope, you know, I mean, I, I've never met your daughter, but I, I mean, I hope she turned out fine and o overcame her, her early medical uh, problems. Um, I mean, there's something unique. I mean, you, like you mentioned this term resilience, there's something unique about our microbiome and our bodies in general that, you know, there's an incredible resilience and, uh, and, and, and the resistance, even if you do some of the, the most, you know, now in retrospect, horrendously sounding things to the microbiome. Um, um, did did she overcome these problems or did- Yeah, it, she did. You know, it was a rough couple of years because she was sick a lot, but it was, you know, green smoothies and broth instead of amoxicillin. And then she recovered and she literally is so rarely sick. And she had strep. It was an interesting story. She had strep. The last time she was really, really sick, I think she was about 12. She just turned 16 and um, she's, you know, healthy, taller than me. She's a rower and a runner. Um, whenever she's, you know, being 16, I think, oh, it must be the microbiome why she's talking back to me like that, <laughs> you know, but I think that's just 16 year old stuff. But the last time she was really sick, she had bad strep when she was about 12. And I resisted taking her because I was like, oh, it's just gonna get better. And finally on like day eight, of her being really sick, I was like, okay, I, I need to take her. And I took her to the ENT and they said, well, do, you know, do you want me to do a swab? I said, yeah, you might as well do it. And they did it and they said, you know, it's strep. And I said, okay, well, let me um, call in the prescription and we'll pick it up. And I decided to actually not pick up the antibiotics. And I said, let me give it one more day. And the next day, she was totally fine, fever gone, symptoms went away, everything. And I just thought, you know, if I had taken the antibiotics, I would have said, oh, the antibiotics did it. It was just time. And again, I'm not suggesting that anybody not treat their kid for strep. In, in Sydney's case, she had had so many antibiotics and, you know, had suffered so much as a result of that, that I was able to make that calculated decision to say, you know what, I think we can wait this one out. She's, you know, and she did get better. Because as you know, Emran, the main reason we use antibiotics for strep is to prevent the complications of strep, which is post-strep glomerulonephritis, kidney failure, and uh, heart disease. But the strep itself in most people will be self-limited. So it is, you know, it's very much an individualized decision that people should make with the help of their pediatrician, their physician, about whether an antibiotic is required or not, but there's some really interesting data from the pediatric literature that suggests that pediatrics will pediatricians will prescribe an antibiotic 68% of the time when they think the parent wants it and 12% of the time when they don't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I suggest you be that kind of parent who is saying, is there something else we can do that's safe beside the antibiotic? Could we watch and wait a little bit? That sort of thing. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really interesting listening to you. So this is essentially what you've been talking about is uh, could be a chapter in in a in a book about the microbiome and 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 antibiotics development, uh, how it how it um, affects the development of the um, you know the adult um, microbiome system. And um, 
I mean, I think you actually mentioned this in in in, in one of your books, the story of your daughter. So, um, saying this out in, in this in this interview now is it's it's really remarkable because every aspect of that story is you know has sort of now become for many of us not I mean sadly not for everybody not for all pediatricians not for all OBGYN doctors has become sort of a you know a knowledge base that we pay much more attention to than 10 years ago or even five years ago I would say um, so I mean you, you know you said a few things about um, um, what you do now differently um, reading through your book uh, God Bliss which you published in 2013 um, I just happen to have it here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I highly recommend it. Reading this now in, in, in preparation for this interview, it's, um, it's remarkable. And I, I have to say what's remarkable for me is the, um, you know, the patient stories. I mean, obviously, you know, many of these patients that you describe in the symptoms, I mean, I, I've seen these patients or I, I see these patients in my own practice as well. And um, and we all know, you know, many of these patients have seen many other physicians before, before they end up seeing us. Um, what, what do you different that, that actually, you know, gives you a success rate in, 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 in dealing with patients that typically in the medical system are called difficult patients? Well, the first thing I want everyone to know is that I'm not any smarter than any other doctor that patients have seen. But I ask different questions and I am interested in the why. So if you're a patient with Crohn's disease and you've been diagnosed by probably a very good doctor and then told that you need to be on a biologic or a steroid and some sort of immunosuppressing medication and you're concerned about that and you come to see me, the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna follow those breadcrumbs back and I'm gonna see was this triggered by an infection? Was this triggered by antibiotics, by non-steroidals? What's your diet like? What's your sleep like? What are your patterns like? Are you a smoker? So I'm gonna go into all of these things and exhaust the possibilities of, is there something we can do that doesn't involve a big gun medication? I'll frequently use the more um, benign medication. So I explain to patients, there's a line in the sand and everything below this line pretty safe. I mean, these are things we give to pregnant women. They're medications, but there's the risk benefit ratio is very good for these drugs. And then when we get above this line here, these drugs, drugs are generally more efficacious, but that efficacy comes at a price. So now you're talking about side effects like serious infection and sometimes even cancer and sometimes even death. So there's a different reckoning when you're thinking about using a drug that could potentially kill you for a disease that really typically doesn't kill you. And so I try and make that a very individual decision. And there are some patients who come to see me where I will say to them, you actually need the big gun drugs. You're really sick and you're really struggling and something bad could happen. You could have a colonic perforation or something. I recommend you go on these drugs for nine to 12 months. Let's get things stable and then let's figure out how to get you off it. Most of the time, that's not the recommendation. Most of the time, the recommendation is, you know, I want you to stop these medications. I want you to throw out this whole shopping bag full of supplements you're taking that isn't doing anything for you. I want you to really think about your sleep. Here's a diet I want you to go on. And, you know, I want you to do some meditation and these other things. But again, I just, you know, want to reinforce the point that it's not that medicine is bad. I am thrilled that we have so many different biologics, potent immunosuppressive drugs, what I advocate for is judicious use. 
let's save the big guns for when we really need them. And let's not put people who are just recently diagnosed with mild disease or moderate disease who might respond beautifully. We have about an 80% response rate in our practice for getting patients off these drugs. So let's try that first. And the other thing is that's not for everybody. There's some patients who will jump through any hoop I put them through. They wanna be better and they wanna avoid the drugs. There are other people out there who are like, you know what? I'm not really trying to change my lifestyle. Just give me the drug. And that's perfectly fine too. You know, I, I don't judge if that's a road that you wanna go down, as long as that's an informed decision and you're aware of what the risks are, absolutely, that's perfectly fine too. So I'm really just trying to provide people with additional options for how they can get their disease into remission without using a drug with potentially harmful side effects. And it's just an alternative. It doesn't have to be the only path. So much of what you said is, you know, applies um, primarily to inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's and, and ulcerative colitis. And, um, uh, you know, for me, it's been interesting. So we're, 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 we have been running a study funded by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation on um, the role of stress in um, flares and symptom flares, a longitudinal study over two years. And, um, you know, talking to the patients before they, um, like, like the initial history and physical, um, it was remarkable to me how common the stories were um, that, that these patients talked about. I mean, obviously these were self-selected patients because somebody wants to participate in a study like this has had experiences that point towards stress and mental phenomena and uh, you know psychological issues more than than if you take all all comers with IBD. But I've I've always been amazed, you know, how many patients told a similar story, and um, how many patients were told you have a, a very resistant form of IBD because they didn't respond well to the to these medications and they had to increase the doses and uh, you know um, rather than exploring you know are there other factors that could drive this and so this has been really an eye-opener for me I mean I, I always suspected it but I've never seen it to, to, to that degree so how much in your practice how much do you deal with the with the brain part of the brain gut axis a lot. And first of all, Emran, I just want to say, you know, I'm so delighted to hear that. And I'm not surprised that you're doing this study because the contribution that a study like this can make to patients and to treatment going forward is just invaluable. So that that's terrific. So I, I've noticed a lot of those same things. I have a lot of young patients who are college age and they would flare around the time of finals. They would flare a lot in the spring before they had finals, before they came home. And what's really fascinating is I'm not the one who discovered that. They know, they would tell me. Yeah, they know, yeah. They, they know. know, they absolutely know. I mean, one of the first things I ask a patient on the phone or in the office who's having a flare is, I'll say, do you think, does this feel like your Crohn's or is this your ulcerative colitis? And they'll say, no, this is, this doesn't feel Crohn'sy. And you know, 99% of the time they're right. And then I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's look at some other things. Let's check for C. diff. Let's do some stool studies, et cetera. But they know if you, if you listen to them and, uh, and if you really hear what they're saying, they know. So I did notice a lot of that. And when we opened, we had a most amazing biofeedback practitioner who was in the office as part of the practice named Emily Perlman, who was just wonderful. And she would do biofeedback. And the biofeedback, as you know, that 
you know, the, the way it works, and I'll just mention briefly the kind we were doing, is there would be sensors, so should be measuring heart rate, should be measuring respiratory rate, and should be measuring temperature. And she would typically take the patient through, you know, think of something stressful and so on. And, and so what they would really learn is, wow, when I think of something stressful, I see not only my heart rate maybe going up, but the heart rate variability decreases. And that's a little bit of a counterintuitive concept, right? But the idea that you, you want to have variability in the heart rate. If your heart rate is 80, you don't want every single beat coming at that same time. There should be a little variation to show that that sinus node is a little relaxed. And so she'd look at heart rate variability. She'd look at the respiratory rate and the temperature. We had a patient who vasodilated with a relaxation and warmed six degrees. And if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would never have believed it. And Emily, one day Emily did some biofeedback on me and one of the things that she pointed out is that I was holding my breath. And I would, you know, when I'm talking or I get a little excited, I frequently am not breathing and then I have to sort of and gasp for air. So it's amazing how you can think that you're so in tune with your body and not even be aware of these various things. I'm, I'm writing a new book, a fourth book, which is really about viruses and the gut and COVID and the gut. And some of the people I've been interviewing are fascinating. I interviewed somebody named Matteo Pistono who does meditation and breath work. And I could literally listen to him talk about breathing for a whole day. And, you know, it seems so basic and fundamental, but when you start to apply it, it can make a huge difference. I, I've been able to be a faster runner because of changes in my breathing. I'm still slow, but faster than I was. I am able to have a different kind of yoga practice. I'm able to sort of relax myself, just sitting and quietly doing breathing. So I think so often the things that can really make a difference, you know, eating more fibrous vegetables, sleeping better, breathing, hydrating, they seem so simple and basic, right? And people want some big kind of, you know, fancy, sexy thing. But we know that the platform of health and gut health is really built on these fundamentals. And I think stress is, stress is key out of all of them. The example I like to use for people is that I'm really afraid of snakes. And so if a snake started, you know, slithering around here right now, I mean, I could actually induce some changes just thinking about it. A couple of things would happen right away. My heart rate would go up, my respiratory rate would go up. I'd start to sweat. My hair would stand on end. All of this stuff would happen without the snake having done anything to me just by seeing the snake. And so this idea that, you know, fear and anxiety are just somehow in your head, they're absolutely in your body. You know, they're measurable. Blood pressure going up, heart rate going up, respiratory rate going up, heart rate variability moving in the wrong direction. So I think when you, you know, when you explain it to people like that, they start to see it. And then now if you imagine these sort of micro, you know, episodes of bursts of adrenaline, like throughout the day, and you describe it so well in your first book, how this stuff, you know, that whole sort of mind gut connection to and the vagus nerve and the bidirectionality, and how it impacts us. And, and people really start to see and start to, you know, make these little changes. So I, I think stress is really foundational for serious complex autoimmune diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. 
as well as more minor things, you know, heartburn, constipation, all of this stuff. Yeah, uh, it's it's really for me. It's it's wonderful to listen to you. I mean, I wish there were more gastroenterologists who have your uh, mindset, Robin. Um, because in some ways, I mean, these are not esoteric things. I mean, these are things that have been around in in other um, you know medical systems, traditional medical systems, traditional Chinese, Ayurvedic. Um, so early in my career, you know, I once organized this. Um, this, this symposium where we brought neuroscientists and practitioners of these ancient healing traditions together. And it was really remarkable. I mean, this was like 20 years ago now, you know, and um, e even at that time, it was for, for a listener, it would be, be very obvious, you know, that all these things um, play a role. And the big question would be why in, in medicine, why have we not incorporated any of these things until now, I mean, now gradually, I think there's a, uh, you know, there's, a, and I, I think what's happened is like everything in Western medicine, if you can show it scientifically, uh, then it's credible. You know, before it's sort of some esoteric teaching and uh, it's very placebo. And, but once you can show it, you know, um, on, a, on a biological level, either in the microbiome and, uh, or, or at the brain level with brain imaging, then it becomes credible and it becomes accepted. So that's sort of been my my approach in the last, you know, throughout my career to sort of provide the science to, to really um, convince the medical establishment that these techniques that that I've known for a long time work, you know, and, and have been practiced for thousands of years, really, um, and are simple, like breathing techniques, you know, are, are really one, one of the simplest things that you can you can recommend to, to a patient. Um, we really, it's so important to really have people like you who are really sort of, you know, so established and not just as clinicians, but as scientists, because I think this change has to come from within our community. This change, unfortunately, is not going to come from people who are outside a more conventional community trying to convince us. It should, but we, we really have to, um, we have to open our colleagues' eyes. But I do also wanna mention something else, Emran, and that is this aspect of commercialism, right? And we know that if a patient goes out and breathes differently and eats more vegetables, who makes money from that? Mm -hmm. Versus the staggering, you know, literally trillions of dollars being made by the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the pharmaceutical industry has really penetrated many of the patient advocacy organizations. And so I've spoken at patient advocacy events talking about diet and so on. And I've had the organizers who are, you know, 100% supported by pharma in some ways put up slides after saying, you know, do not abandon conventional prescription therapy. And so I think that that it's uncomfortable to talk about because we are part of that community in the sense that we're conventional physicians. And in no way do I believe that my average gastroenterology colleague is thinking about making money for a pharmaceutical company. That's not what's going on. But when you look at the education and how the knowledge is trickling down and who are the speakers at the plenary sessions at our medical conferences and how much funding are they receiving and grant support, et cetera, you start to see the influence. And, and I think we need to talk about that and we need to make consumers aware that that is often, because people say to me, well, why didn't my doctor talk about that? And I'm like, well, first of all, you had a 
eight minute appointment as opposed to a one hour appointment, number one. Um, number two, you know, look who's lining the doors of the physician's offices is the pharmaceutical reps. And it's a quick, you know, you're gonna prescribe this drug and you're gonna be on your way as opposed to you and I have to sit down and do the heavy lifting of a one hour conversation about this. So I think that, you know, patients need to know that there is a very significant commercial aspect to medical care and they need to start asking some questions about that too. And, and I think really try and engage their physician in some of these conversations. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Robin. I mean, having been you know, part of that system early in my career, because for a lot of junior um, faculty members, you know, you're excited that there's a company that um, invites you to their symposia and you get national exposure. And probably one of the fastest way to get national exposure is to work with pharmaceutical companies. Um, it's gotten a little bit better, uh, and, but it's more hidden now, I think. It's not as obvious and blatant as, as it used to be like 20, 30 years ago. Um, but th this is unfortunate, you know, how much commercialism has infiltrated uh, the pharmaceutical um, and how the pharmaceutical industry has um, done that. Um, but I should also say, I mean, part of the, part of the medical system, you know, I mean, hospitals make tons of money. Like for example, you know, the, uh, the indications for endoscopies um, have expanded and the cost has expanded uh, pretty exponentially in the last um, 30 years. And um, um, this is obviously the main moneymaker. During the pandemic where there had to be a slowdown of endoscopies, a lot of smaller hospitals went bankrupt because yeah that revenue stream could not be maintained. So, yeah, I mean, it's not the purpose in this conversation that, I mean, I could talk about this for, for a long time from personal experiences. And thank God, you know, I, I'm no longer dependent on any pharmaceutical industry to help me in my career and, and, and uh, exposure. So I'm, I'm sure it's the same thing for you. So it's easy for us to, you know, to point out these, these, these problems. Um, um, let me ask you another question. You mentioned it a couple of times. I mean, uh, in, 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 in your books, you know, you've, you've written about the microbiome. Uh, how, how did microbiome science change your um, view of, about gut health and your approach to, um, has, has this been mainly in the area of diet or supplements or what, uh, what is your main um, lesson from the microbiome science? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question, Emran, because really it's changed it in every way and much less so with supplements. I, I'm very, um, I'm not a big advocate of supplements the same way I am not generally of, of prescription medication either. I mean, certainly in certain situations, you know, if your vitamin D is low, by all means repleted, if you have Crohn's and you've had an ileal resection, your B12 will probably be low. But again, not the sort of generic, you know, take a vitamin or a probiotic, et cetera. Really what is so fascinating is I spend so much of my time trying to undo some of the medical damage from prescription drugs. So overuse of antibiotics, you know, teenagers who've been put on two years of doxycycline for acne, and now they have terrible gas and bloating and bacterial overgrowth. Um, patients who have symptomatic diverticulosis, who have been put on recurrent courses of antibiotics, and now they're in a cycle of diverticulitis flares that they can't get out of. Patients who've been treated with reflux with 
proton pump inhibitors and now again have bacterial overgrowth or having problems from that. So I always start with a medicine cabinet <laughs> and it's usually trying to pull some things out of there, not, not put things in there. And so I like, you know, as I, as I think about this, I like to think about it in terms of sort of remove, replace, restore. That's a healthy, that's a helpful kind of framework to put it on. So remove, what are the things that this person is doing that are actually contributing to their digestive illness? It could be a medication they're taking. You know, it could be, we know, for example, some antidepressants like fluoxetine marketed as Prozac can cause a lot of problems in the microbiome. It can lead to the development of resistant E. coli, et cetera. So is there a medication, whether it be an antidepressant, a proton pump inhibitor, a steroid, an antibiotic, birth control, whatever it is, that in their particular case, not necessarily for everybody, but in their case is contributing to the problem? And if so, can we safely remove it? or substitute something else. So that's the first place. The second place is replace. If it is clear that they have a very disordered microbiome, is there a way for us to effectively replace microbes? And there are very few, or really just two or three probiotics that I use generally at a prescription level. And some of them I know you're familiar with that have been really well studied here and in Europe and have found to be equivalent in some cases to prescription medication. So we'll often use that, or if it's a traveler's diarrhea, there might be a particular probiotic. If there's somebody who's had recurrent C. diff, we might use a form of Saccharomyces, but it's never a generic approach. It's always, you know, what is there data behind this particular mm -hmm. probiotic that we're using? Um, and so that's sort of the replace. And replace is also get outside in nature because where do we get our microbes from other than the food? We get them from soil. So, you know, if you're in your office all day and then inside at the gym and then inside at home, I'm like, no, you've got to go out and walk in the woods literally and sit in the dirt for a moment and get out into nature. So that's a replace. And then the restore is generally, this is diet and lifestyle. So this is the meditation, the breath work, the mindfulness, the food, the green smoothies. And the, our food approach is really more about adding than subtracting. I mean, yes, if you're having massive amounts of processed sugar and refined wheat and so on, that's going to be a problem, but really focusing on what you're missing. And I, I have some simple rules for patients. I talk about the one, two, three rule, which is one vegetable in the morning, two at lunch, three at dinner, so that you get six servings. I myself often flip that because I like to do green smoothies and get it done with. So I'll often have four or five green vegetables in the morning with a smoothie and then less as I go through the day. But really, you know, telling patients the, the ideal food to create a healthy microbiome, as you know, is indigestible plant fibers. So our gut bacteria can ferment that, turn it into short chain fatty acids. And so if you're not eating that, it doesn't matter what probiotic you're taking, you're gonna just poo most of it out. You know, it really is about the diet. And I love that in your first book, in the Mind-Gut Connection, I love some of the case studies you had in there and, you know, people always wanting the probiotic and you're like, well, that's fine to take, but that's, that's not what's really doing the work here. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, people like the idea that they're, they're gonna take a pill, but I think it's really our job to, you know, really explain the science to them and how this works so that they can be successful in what they're doing. Yeah, you mentioned, so I have a, you know, we're almost out of time. So I have a, a couple of questions I want to ask you. So one is, um, 
so you you've been talking about you know and and you just mentioned this the exposure to nature and to the soil and uh, you know dirt. Um, so there's a um, there's an article coming out in the New York Times actually I think in tomorrow's uh, edition I've, I've seen the electronic version um, that's about this topic during the pandemic with the restriction of people of, of, of children primarily having to stay at home in, 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 in apartments, not being in school, being exposed to other kids, not playing you know, in, in the natural environment, that that may actually have a major damaging effect on the microbiome. <clears throat> I mean, what do you think about that concept? Absolutely, that's absolutely right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm an avid reader in addition to writer and I like to promote other people who've written terrific books like you. One is a pediatric neurologist named Maya Shatrit Klein who wrote a book called The Dirt Cure which I highly recommend particularly if you have kids. And the other is not a physician, it's a book called, I don't recall the author, but the book is called uh, Last Child in the Woods, Nature Deficit Disorder. Imagine nature deficit disorder. It is a real thing. And it is, you know, they're not just from the soil and the microbes, but also from a mental point of view, which I'm sure you'd agree with me, Emran, because there are things when I go for a hike in the woods as opposed to getting on my Peloton bike, I feel completely differently. I mean, I sweat on my bike, but my mood is lifted. And we know this whole concept of forest bathing of the trees emitting all these incredible, you know, different factors and pheromones and so on. We know that there's an open air factor that back with the Spanish flu in 1918, that soldiers who recuperated outside did better than those who did inside. So there are factors in the air, some of which we're not even aware of, you know, beyond helping you convert vitamin D, et cetera, these things that are good for mood, uh, and they're good for our immune system and they're good for our microbiome. I just want to show you really quickly. I'm really lucky to live uh, here. So that's- Oh, wow. That is wonderful. That is, yeah. I live right on the edge of a beautiful forest, Rock Creek Park. And that really is my medicine going out there. The pollen is a little problematic this time of year in DC, but I go out in the woods for hours and I, you know, get quite dirty and I just feel so rejuvenated and it is a huge problem. And I, I feel particularly kids who are in urban areas because you're already in areas where there's more pollution. There's studies that show that the more glass and concrete there are in neighborhoods, not only is there more asthma, but there's more staff on the skin and more eczema, et cetera. So these kids are already at such a disadvantage and they, they don't have the ability to walk out their door and, and go walking in the woods like this. And, and I, I really wish that city planners and so on would look at this and the need for green spaces as a medical necessity, not as like, you know, would be nice to have, but from a medical point of view, our communities need access to these spaces. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, having, you know, myself grown up in a small town in the Bavarian Alps and um, being outdoor most of the time after school um, and, you know, spending lots of time in the mountains and still doing this today, hiking. So. And the farm, right? Your uncle's farm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a, yeah. yeah, when I when I compare this to, you know, how kids grew up in L.A., uh, it's, it's amazing. It's like really... And that term that you mentioned is nature deficit disorder. I, I'm sure 
plays a major role and may, maybe playing a role as much as our dietary changes that have happened, you know, at the same time. Um, um, so, yeah, let me ask you a, a last question. So this always uh, comes up. So you, rec you make a lot of recommendations of healthy things to your patients and I've heard, so, you, you know, you're um, an avid outdoor person, you're a marathon runner. So you do all the right things, you're exposed to nature. Um, and <clears throat> what about your diet? What, what, what kind of diet do you um, practice yourself? And is that something that you do in the family? Does everybody adhere to the same diet or? Well, I'll, I'll, before I even get to the diet, I'll add to that, that I, I, I'm a little bit dirty too. Like I haven't washed my hair for a few days. I didn't bathe this morning. <laughs> so I try not to, I mean, obviously we're living in an age of pandemic, so I'm good with the hand washing and so on. But I try not to super sanitize myself all the time. You know, if I, if I, I like to take baths and I'll just use the water and I just a little, you know, just in mm. the sort of grottier bits, but I'm not, I don't like this idea. I think it's really bad for you, this idea of, you know, lathering up from head to toe. Um, in terms of the diet, my husband is vegan. He, a couple times a year on his birthday, sometimes at Christmas, he might eat uh, some animal protein, but 99.9% .9 of the time he's 100% plant-based. Funnily enough, he was a huge sort of poultry eater. He didn't eat red meat or pork, but he ate lots of turkey and chicken and so on when we met uh, 20 years ago. And gradually over time, he, you know, started to change really as a result of spending time with me. And then about four or five years ago, uh, I was speaking at a conference in Asheville, Plant Stock. If you're familiar with Caldwell Esselstein and his son Rip and Engine 2 and all the wonderful work they do. I was speaking at that conference and Michael Gregor, who wrote How Not to Die and yeah. runs, um, you know, nutritionfacts.org, Neil Barnard. I mean, all these people who, Emran, you and I have spoken about this. These are people who are not in it for any money. Mm -hmm. These are the good guys. They're in it for the right reasons. Um, but they're all pretty devout vegans. And I was up there on stage and I was like, I'm not a vegan, but we all should eat more plants. But my husband was with me and he listened to that to Michael Gregor's talk and they were premiering the film Game Changers and he watched that. And we left Asheville and we went to Charlotte and he ordered a last steak and some pate. And he said, and that was it. And his motivation is because his father who died in his late seventies had his first cardiac event at 50, a near fatal heart attack and had many more cardiac events and then died of sudden death, likely a cardiac event in his late seventies. And so it was a thing my husband was most concerned about. And he was always checking his cholesterol. And so I'll tell you about a year after becoming vegan, checked his cholesterol and it had gone from like 260 to like 157 or something, you know, great profile. He had a zero calcium score. He did his stress echo and the cardiologist was like, basically don't come back. And I say to him all the time, I'm like, you are not going to have coronary artery disease. This isn't, you know, if you've ever read Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by Caldwell Esselstein, you realize that this stuff does not fall out of the sky. Sometimes it does. Sometimes, you know, there's some genetic thing, but for the majority of people, and you've probably been in the operating room as a medical student, Emran, you see when they pull that plug out of the coronary arteries, that's not kale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's straight up lard. So for him, it was such a revelation that he can actually veer off this course that his father went down. 
He's a trail runner. He's not diabetic. He's not sedentary. He's not obese. He's not a smoker. He eats 100% plant diet. And now he never worries about his heart. So he's pretty hardcore. I'm not vegan. I'm aspirationally vegan, but I do eat some animal protein. So for example, our dinner last night, and we had a little dinner with friends and there was a vegetable soup. And I made one of my favorite dishes, which is quinoa and brown rice. And then I basically, it's like everything but the kitchen sink. I happened to have cabbage around. I had Brussels sprouts and I had broccolini. So I chopped that all up really fine. I put in some celery for crunch. I put in some golden raisins and I put in some toasted pine nuts. So it's sort of a one pot dish. So my husband had, he had the veggie soup. He had a big salad with fennel and arugula and greens. And he had this quinoa, brown rice, veggie thing. And I had all of that, but I had a little piece of leftover salmon and I had a lot of chocolate. So that's, I eat good quality chocolate, um, dark, not, you know, it's not a lot of sugar or dairy or anything, but I do, um, I, I do eat a lot of chocolate. So that would be very typical for us. So I, you know, reserve the right to have a piece of chicken or some eggs or something, but mostly it's plant-based. My dad's Indian. We eat a lot of Indian food. Ironically, my husband, who is not Indian, is the one who's doing most of the Indian cooking now. So he makes lots of lentils. He makes delicious chickpeas. We make dal. So we'll eat a lot of that. We eat a lot of rice. So it's a lot of rice and dal, um, some sort of lentil soups. I make a lot of soup. Um, so we, tr- and we try to eat mostly from the farmer's market. We do, you know, we're at our local Whole Foods frequently too, but we try to get most of the things from the farmer's market. And we notice such a difference, quite frankly, the produce stays good much longer because it hasn't flown 3000 miles to get to you. It's just about to collapse when you finally bring it home from the supermarket as opposed to the local stuff. And I'm very suspicious of fruits and vegetables that don't have dirt on them. Mm-hmm. You know, like you see these carrots and they're all exactly 6.2 inches and perfectly orange mm-hmm. and there's no dirt anywhere. <laughs> and so. Yeah. I, I want dirty food. I want to have food that was grown in soil nearby, ideally, and be able to eat that. And I notice a huge difference when that's the sort of food we're eating. Yeah, thanks, Robbie, uh, Robin, for sharing this personal story. I mean, it's really remarkable because, um, um, yeah, like, you know, like what you're doing and what you're doing in your family, uh, this is would be the main recommendation. I mean, depending on, I mean, I think there's personal you know, preferences for some people, they're ethical, um, some people they're religious, but but in, but in general, what you described is essentially what we all should be eating. I mean, if you want to do the most for our health and um, not rely on the medical system, you know, to help us with the medications with the age, starting with the age of 50, and then, you know, having the same, um, the same combination of drugs, um, you know that that now almost the majority of people in 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 old age are are on. So um, anyway, I and unfortunately we've come to the end of this our our time. I mean, I I could go on for a long time, and hopefully we will have many more opportunities. Um, yes, you're going to be on my. Uh, I'm launching the Gupless podcast in a month, and you're going to be one of my first guests, and I'm so excited for that. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to this, and also, I mean, I should mention, you know, you suggested this, and I think it's a very exciting idea to um, look into the possibility of sort of getting like-minded gastroenterologists together in sort of an integrative gastroenterology um, entity, so patients 
um, have the choice depending on the east and west coast where they get the similar kind of advice so a very exciting project and um, anyway so I would like to thank you for taking the time it's been wonderful I have to say it's really enjoyed this and um, I'm sure that our listeners also find that a really enlightening hour of, of, of information and uh, particularly with your personal stories I think that makes it very um, you know, close to home. So um, thanks again. And, uh, you know, one thing that I may want to ask is, I'm not prepared to do this right now. If you could hold up your books again, that you- Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the first one is Gut Bliss. And that's sort of, well, obviously they're seeing it backwards, but this is sort of good general gastroenterology advice. If you want to be a medical sleuth and figure out, you know, find out more about your gallstones and your ulcer, and if you have a parasite, et cetera. And then the microbiome solution, and I have to admit, this is my favorite, although I could never repeat this hairstyle again. This was like four hours of hairstyling to make my hair do that. But um, this is all about the microbiome, autoimmune diseases, hygiene hypothesis, et cetera. Love this one. And then this one was like a little extra, the bloat cure. This is a fun... Uh, 101 things that bloat you A to Z, 101 natural solutions for real and lasting relief. So if you want to be a medical detective about your bloating, and then the fourth one, which will be out probably January 2022, which I'm hard at work at, working title is the antiviral gut. And I'm super excited about that. And also looking at other things like what causes reactivation of polio and what causes, you know, reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus and why do some people get exposed to HIV but never get infected and, you know, all of these other things. So, and when, you know, I think that what, what we do as physicians, the most important thing we do as physicians is we take our experience. In my case, it's been 30 years since I graduated from medical school and thousands of patients and we take that and how can we democratize access to that information? How can we take it and put it in a book or a podcast, a video, and give it to people, empower people so that they can take better care of their health? And to me, that is the utmost privilege. So thank you for allowing me to do a little bit of that today and being on this journey with you. Yeah, thanks again. It was a pleasure and looking forward to talk to you soon. Bye, Robin. Thanks, Emran. Thanks, Emran.